Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. We're in now hour two of Guy Talk, and I think this is appropriate. Let me tell you, I've got a power panel today. Tom Parrish, Greg Borgond, and Jeff Verdorn here to answer your questions. So if you just climbed in your car, I hope you had a wonderful day. If you are getting dinner ready, what's for dinner? Because I'm always curious. And uh, we're going to take questions and Great, great questions coming in. If you've got yours ready to go, text it over 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. All right. How do you talk to new age family members when you are a Christian without cutting the relationship off because they are in very deep and unwilling to believe anything else? Do we just pray and not say anything back when they send links to what they believe? Oh, I'd love to talk to these people. I bet you would, Tom Parrish. I enjoy them very much. And the reason I like to talk to them is that um, one of the first things I want to do is I want to listen as much as I can to what they're saying, see if I can get an understanding. And then I ask the Lord under my breath constantly, you know, Lord, give me questions I can ask them that will challenge their logic, their basis, their whatever they come up with. And the Lord has always been good. Now, I've been doing this a long time, so I've got some experience. I started asking the questions, and usually what happens is that most of them, if you can do it without getting your emotions in the way or getting angry or whatever, you can ask the questions. It is amazing how many of them will say, well, I don't know. Why, I don't know where that came from. I don't understand. And it's in that challenging, and you don't want to keep that going on a long time. It's kind of a, you, you do it, you get away from it, you come back, you do it again. It's multiple times, and I have seen people literally come away from that thinking and literally start asking about Jesus and how do they become right with him. Yeah, and we've, we've talked actually about this, Bill, on your show. I don't, I don't know if it was on Guy Talk or not, but we talked about, or I talked about the fact that um, essentially run into two types of people like this. They're either a skeptic or they're a cynic. A skeptic is somebody who has a threshold that if you simply answer the question, sound logical to them and they can piece it together, they'll get to a point where they're ready to hear what you have to say. Where cynic, which is I think what the questioner is is, is talking about, they think they have all the answers. Sure. New Age, they have all the answers. They're cynics, so, so they feel that they're above the fray. And all they want to do is have a monologue to give you what, what they particularly believe. So how do you deal with them? Well, first of all, for a, for a skeptic who has a threshold, you simply answer the questions they're asking and try not to go any further. Seeing a door open, you don't want to spit out everything you know because they'll not come back again. And maybe they'll test you with a surface question. So you simply discipline yourself to answer the questions they're asking. With a cynic, just what Tom was referring to, you question the answers they're giving. So in other words, you're not doing it with disrespect or to try to shame them. You're asking them to be thinking about how does this correlate with what you said a few moments ago? Have you considered this, just like what you're talking about, Tom? I did that with my dad. 
I mean, on Sugar Island, before his death, um, he was very much a cynic. And so I knew that. And so he was spouting off what his beliefs were about multiple gods and all the rest of it. And I'd simply say, Dad, how does that relate to what you said a few minutes ago about this thing? And this went on for a little while. And before it was over with, he, he looked out this picture window where the Great Lakes tankers go by. And as if I wasn't there, and he said about himself, he says, well, that sounded stupid, didn't it? Because he, nobody had asked him to correlate the thoughts that he was saying. And then what you, the, the other thing I would say, regardless if they're a skeptic or a cynic, you have to rely on the Holy Spirit. He's the one that convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's in every single conversation. So you have a responsibility to that person, answer the questions they're asking, question the answers they're giving, but you cannot take responsibility for them. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I want to be a, I want to be a tool of the Holy Spirit. I don't want to be a hindrance to the Holy Spirit. And there's plenty I can do to hinder a conversation. You don't want to be a replacement for me. No, I want the the Lord to speak. And that's why I say a lot of the time you're really listening to the Holy Spirit as well as the person. Mm -hmm. I like that you question the answers, Greg. I I think that my approach with a cynic is is basically like that. You question their assumptions. You question, well, Mm -hmm. why do you believe what you believe? How did you come to that conclusion? What are the foundational kind of assumptions or conclusions that they have made because there's something behind that, right? And they're believing some lie. So what is that? Keep just asking them questions about how they got to where they're at. And at some point in time, you'll figure out, oh, that's it. That's the foundation that you're building on that's not correct. Yeah. Well done, gentlemen. All right. How is God going to judge children? When children die, are they going to heaven or do they need to accept Christ as their savior? Well, it depends on on what we've talked about again here in the past, and that's the age of accountability and where do we get that from? You remember when, when David had his illicit relationship with Bathsheba and a child was born out of that relationship. The child became very, very sick. David was overwrought. And, and wept about him, tore his clothes, was in, uh, and, and then the child died, and he cleaned himself up and went back and ruling, and, and they were asking him, the courtiers, how could you do that? And he says, well, uh, you know, I've, God's chosen to take his life, but I will be with him again. So there's an indication there that that child, who obviously was a small child, maybe even a baby, um, he was going to see again. And so the whole, and there's other scriptures that kind of relate to that. The idea is, is that we don't know, you know, there's a different age for age of accountability, depending on mental capacity and so forth. But God knows that. And so God is not going to hold, like somebody that's mentally incapacitated. Right. And they don't, they're not going to be able to respond to, to the gospel. So does that mean they go to hell? No. God is a just God. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm thinking about the 63 million babies aborted in this country alone, as well mm. as around the world. I get asked all the time, well, what's happened to those babies? Well, if a sparrow can't fall to the ground that your Heavenly Father doesn't know about and care about, he has much more concern for people. They're created in his image. And I know this, that with those babies, those children, uh, whatever the decision is, and I believe they're going to be with the Lord. I really do. But the Lord will be eminently fair. There's going to be nothing out of place and nothing that you and I could ever say, well, that wasn't right. No, he will do the right thing, and I believe they will be with him for eternity. 
You know, um, my wife and I, before our, ch- our daughter was born, we suffered the loss of, of four babies. But I had this assurance, even as a young Christian, that I would see those children again. Yeah. That I would see them in heaven. And so when I go home to be with the Father, when, we, when I crash through the gates of heaven, utterly exhausted, having expended everything on the field of engagement, I'm hoping to, to meet the children that I never saw um, and that's my hope, and that's what my belief is based on my understanding of Scripture. Absolutely. All right. Nicely I agree, done. guys. Nicely done. Here's a question. Was the ascension spoken about in prophecy? I, I assume the ascension out of Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascends into heaven, was that spoken about in prophecy? I don't, I've, I've done a class on all the Old Testament prophecies for Christ. Uh, my list has uh, 87 unique direct prophecies for Christ. I know some have 100 or 104 or more, um, but there are there. Are, I tried to limit mine to specific, unique, direct prophecies. I don't remember, can't think. I don't know if you guys can a specific prophecy about the ascension. One of the kind of prophetic types, if you will, not a direct prophecy, but a type, a, a precursor, if you will, is when the when God is in the temple. His presence was dwelling, dwelling in the temple, and he's living with the with Israel, and they kind of forget about him. He decides, well, they, they've forgotten about me. I'm going to leave. I'm going to pack up my bags, and I'm going to move out of the temple. And there's this sad picture of the Spirit, this presence of God coming out of the temple over the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives and then going back up to heaven. Well, guess where Jesus ascends to heaven in Acts chapter 1? He's standing on the Mount of Olives, and that's where he goes up bodily, physically, visibly into the clouds as people are looking on. That's called his rapture, by the way, in Revelation 12, his ascension is called his catching up, and that is his rapture. So I don't think there's a unique direct prophecy, but it is foreshadowed in Scripture. I like the concept of foreshadowing, and I agree. So much is foreshadowed in the Old Testament. We don't always get all the details in the Old Testament, nor do we always get direct prophecies of it. And I think the Lord has done that for a very specific reason. He's done it so that our focus has to be on the Savior himself, not on everything that comes around it, but in him we have everything we need. So, yeah, it's foreshadowing is a good term. I don't know of any particular reference. Maybe, Greg, you do. No, I, 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 nothing comes to mind right at the moment. Yeah. Right, yeah, the, the fact that he God predicted that he wouldn't see decay uh, is a is a prediction that he would rise again uh, to glory. Uh, so that is there, but specific prophecy for his ascension, I can't. I don't think it's there. I don't think there is one. All right, this next question is one I might take. Wow, Bill, is that a good idea? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> we we like the idea. Oh, you do? Yeah, yes. we, this mm-hmm. we think you should uh, go for it, Bill. All right. All right. When you speak about receiving your passion from God at conversion, what happens when you're Catholic and you've believed ever since you could remember? Well, I was raised Catholic, and when I uh, became born again, when I was in seventh grade, it happened at my Catholic church. My religion and choir teacher had us, uh, got us all Bibles, had us memorize 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And he talked about how we are raised to believe in God, but at what point do you own your faith and make it yours? And 
put your faith and trust in God. And that happened to me in seventh grade. And I think it was at the time when I started to read God's word for myself. I mean, I would Mm -hmm. go to mass and I loved going to mass and I loved, I was an altar boy and I loved being there. And some kids didn't like going to church. I loved it. And I loved the music. I loved the candles. I loved everything, the stained glass in the church. But when I would just hear the homilies, it were, they were good. But when I opened my Bible and I started taking notes and I started reading and I started to feel like the Holy Spirit was taking me on this beautiful journey of faith, I was passionate like never before. So that's when I got my passion. Yeah, it's almost impossible to understand the Bible apart from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who gives you the Holy Spirit who resides in you, becomes our instructor, our interpreter, our teacher. And all of a sudden, the Word of God, which is living and active, it comes to life. And so I think, Bill, what you're talking about is that you were reading life and, and you were feeling it as well as understanding it, and it, it's kind of overwhelming. I mean, we can go through lots of rituals. I grew up as a Roman Catholic, too. I was an altar boy until I was benched for eating unblessed hosts, but that's another story. Anyway, um, but I loved the church, too. I mean, the Catholic Church, as we've talked about in the past, taught me about the awesome respect for the majesty of God, even though I didn't have a personal relationship with Christ. But what became real to me is after I came to Christ and opened up the Word of God, and all of a sudden, it made sense. All right, we'll take a break. We'll be right back with lots more God Talk. Send your great questions over. I know you have one, so let's send it over. 877-933-2484. We will get your question answered right here on the show. Be right back. Hi there and welcome. If you are a new listener, we want to officially welcome you with a free welcome packet gift. Request yours today at MyFaithRadio.com. Back to the show. It's guy talk or guys who talk. Very popular in all fifty states. I just, I'm just reading my this press release that said that I wrote it, but so I'm not, I'm not entirely sure I'm it's true. It must be true. But I'm, it's, I, you know, right. it's in my handwriting, so it's it must inspired, be true. Obviously. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Gentlemen, uh, Tom, Greg, and Jeff, I have questions that are coming in, so let's uh, address this one. Is there a deeper meaning in Exodus when the people ask to eat meat? They obviously had plenty of meat herds, etc. What am I missing? Is there a deeper meaning in Exodus when the people ask to eat meat? Is this the meat that they asked for the quail when they're in the wilderness? Is that I'm guessing the timing of this a different question? kind of meat? I think so. Of yeah, quail. I'm guessing that, yeah. yeah. That probably has a lot to do with it. I mean, if you had steak every night, wasn't it uh, Jordan Peterson who went on a diet and he just ate nothing but steak every day? For a year, and he lost a lot of weight, and he said, "I don't care if I ever have a steak again in my no. life." You know, no matter how good, we like a little variety. Did they refer to a particular chapter again? They did not. No. They, they did not. So, 
I can only assume then that was because they did complain about having quail every day. So, uh, well, and they're a lot like us. They complained about everything, you know. And <laughs> how Moses put up with that, I have no idea, but he did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Here's another question: Can we forgive ourselves? Can we or will we? Is the question. What can we forgive ourselves? Is the question. I th- I think we can and. I think we should. I think one of the issues with some who are burdened or troubled or are not right with God in a, in a sense that they're believers, they're, so they're right with God. I mean, they have peace with God. They've been reconciled to God. But they're still living with their past in a sense that they're, they are still holding it over their heads. You mm-hmm. just read from 1 John 1, 9 that says, when you believe and are saved, God forgives you of all unrighteousness. Yeah. And I think one of the issues that Christians have is they haven't forgiven themselves when God has forgiven them. And he separated their sins as far as the east is from the west. He remembers yeah. it no more. Lots of God says he no longer holds this against you, and that and yet you're holding it against yourself. And I don't think that's... Yeah. That's. Uh, I think we should forgive ourselves just as God has forgiven us. I, I think it's the enemy's ploy who can, continually wants to remind you of the failures of your past. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And God wants to bring you to the victory of your future, the struggles in the present. God is God. Satan is not. But the idea is, is that if you're operating from a position of shame and you feel shameful about what you've done, and you're feeling the weight of that. God shames no one. He convicts us, but he shames no one. So that shame is coming from somewhere, and I think it's coming in the first person because it, I, in Scripture is clear that God can, or not God, but Satan can sow thoughts into your mind that come in the first person. And so if he can continue to remind you of your past and that you can't forgive yourself because it's constantly in front of you, it's stopping you from becoming who God's created you to be. Again, moving towards that place where you have spiritual vitality, where you have strength, where you uh, are able to submit yourself to God to resist the devil and flee from him. He'd rather keep you in subjugation. He'd rather you be weak. And so he's going to continue to remind you of your failures. You remember that time? You're not going to get beyond that. You're on the bench. God's put you on the backside of the desert. And so consequently, we believe that. So I just sense that it's the enemy that does that. And we need to understand if God can forgive us, then we should be able to forgive ourselves because he's blotted it out. I had a German Bible teacher. I mean, he was strongly German. We were talking about this very concept, and he made an interesting statement. He said, if the king of the universe who rose from the dead and shed his blood for the sins of the universe and has defeated Satan and the power of death has forgiven you, why are you spitting in his face saying you can't forgive yourself? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he was kind of blunt and straightforward, but he was absolutely right, yeah. because why do we make our own lack of forgiveness supersede what the Lord has already done for us? Yeah. It is his forgiveness that matters. Therefore, he declares us righteous. We are. Amen. Mm. Well done. All right. Another question, gentlemen. I think, Jeff, I'm going to look your direction to get things started. My understanding of Revelation is those who receive the mark of the beast are doomed forever. Yet after God's wrath is poured out, Revelation 16.10 says, subjects ground their teeth in anguish and they still did not repent. So there is a, so is there a final chance for those who accept the mark to repent and be saved? There, there is a, some say that 
once the, this tribulation period began, because that's what we're talking about, this this time of Jacob's trouble, Daniel's 70th week of judgment, the, the tribulation as it is called, when this begins, some say that you there, there'll be nobody saved. But we actually see in Revelation 7 that there's a great multitude of people that come out of the great tribulation yeah. and are now in heaven. So clearly, many, many people believe during this time and are saved. So let's establish that. Second, the the question is correct in that uh, Revelation 14 indicates that those who take the mark of the beast, they will have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. It seems that they are destined for uh, Hades uh, upon death. And so it appears that if you make that decision, at that decision point, that that kind of seals your fate during this time of yeah. the tribulation period. Um, then the Revelation 16 passage that the caller mentioned uh, is is at the God is pouring out His bold judgments on the earth, and many in the world are going to basically curse God because of these judgments and not mm-hmm. repent. And so, you, you, do you see the picture here? They're cursing the very God for the judgments be, that are coming upon them because they refuse to believe in that very God. Well, they become like Satan and his demons. They know the truth; they just won't submit to it. And that's the danger for all of us. We must, for anybody, we must always submit to what the Lord has said rather than think that we have all the answers and we don't have to listen to what he's already declared. Yeah, we talk sometimes about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and what does that really mean. Um, My understanding and my study of Scripture is there's a point at which there is no return, that when somebody makes a decision that's irreversible, and denies Christ, in effect, blaspheming the Holy Spirit by doing so, that that decision that they've made is a final decision, not in the eyes of God, but in their eyes, they've made that final decision. There is no return from that. That is indeed the unforgivable sin, is to deny Christ unequivocally, unreservedly, and unashamedly. The tragedy is there are people on their deathbed who will hear the gospel very clearly, and will be under conviction that they are sinful, but do exactly what you said, Greg. They still refuse to submit to Jesus, and they die without ever giving over to him, and therefore there is no forgiveness any longer, and they are doomed for eternity. Nicely done. All right, we've got uh, time for your question, so let me know what it is, 877-933-2484. We still have questions in the queue, but we have plenty of time for your question. So please send it over. We'd love to hear from you and whatever you've got on your mind. And maybe there's a question that came up in a Bible study eight years ago that you're still trying to get an answer to. (laughs) I promise these guys will do their very best job to answer that question. 877-933-2484. And if you uh, would love to read the Bible together with us, we'd love for you starting June 29th. For two weeks, we're going to go through Second Timothy. So you can sign up for the two-week study right now and get your free study guide. I said free. Isn't that nice? Free study guide at myfaithradio.com. We'll be right back with lots more guide talk in just a minute.
It is the afternoon show, and I am Bill Arnold, so that is all true. We've got guy talk happening, or guys who talk, and they're doing a great job. I've got Greg Borgond, Tom Parrish, and Jeff Verdorn as my power panel today. So whatever questions you have, they will do their very best to answer. I think last week you guys got stumped on one question, or you said, I don't know how to answer that, so that was good. There there are many I honestly don't know how to answer. Uh, I get it. In everybody's life, a little humility must follow. I get it. All right, here's a question. Uh, My niece says that homosexuality is no worse a sin than gossip. Do you agree? If not, how would you explain it to her? Well, first of all, sin is sin. She's she's absolutely right. Gossip and homosexuality are sin. They're both transgressions. They're uh, choosing to live independent from God. But where the differentiation takes place, where it differs is the consequences of the exercise of that sin. And so, consequently, sin is sin, but it's the consequences on who it's going to impact. I mean, there's going to be a judgment of nations, and they're going to be held to a different set of standards by those who ruled nations that turned away from God. There's going to be uh, different types of judgments. So the idea is is that it's the consequences of the exercise of that sin that's different. And certainly with homosexuality, the consequences and the ramifications are far more dangerous, far more um, universal, far more soul-killing than gossip. And I'm not undermining or under, um, uh, yeah, undermining the, the significance of the trouble with gossip and the danger akin because people's reputation has been destroyed because of it. But we have to take a look at the consequences of the exercise of those sins. I had a friend who died of AIDS, and he had been in the gay lifestyle for 20-some <clears throat> years. And by the grace of Jesus, he came out of it, lived another 10 years, became AIDS was still there, a consequence of his behavior. And he told me, he said, I've got to accept the consequence. What I was doing was wrong. But the thing he pointed out is this, and I think this is where you got to be careful— People are trying to sell the homosexual lifestyle and two men getting married or two women getting married or living together as uh, a fidelity type of love. He said in in the community he was in, all those years of gay men, there was no such thing as fidelity to one other man. It was usually, he was telling me, it was easy to have sexual relationship even though he was living with a man and they were so-called sexual partners, he said it was not unusual for him in a nighttime to go to someplace and have sex with five or six other people. So he said, that's where the problem comes in. It's not like the traditional marriage that the Lord wants between the male and female and the fidelity there. He said it has other consequences. Now, can people run around on their spouses? Well, yeah, and we all know what a bad sin that is and how it destroys people. You know, James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. And Jesus said, whoever Mm -hmm. breaks one of the the least of these commands is basically guilty of breaking all of the commands. So in that regard, one sin, even the smallest sin, disqualifies a person for entering into a relationship with God. You must be righteous. You must be holy and pure. And the only way to become righteous and pure and holy and be united with God is by faith so that God, whatever your sin is, little or big, he will forgive you 
and and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Now, so that in that regard, like Greg, like you were saying, sin is sin. Uh, but there's obviously, look, a little white lie compared to mass murder. There's obviously degrees of of, of yeah. evil of mm-hmm. of disobeying God, and so you have to separate out the question between sin for salvation and you know the the behavior and Greg also like you were saying the 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 consequences of those behaviors in this world. Yeah. All right. Here's a response in real time to the show. I know one of you was talking about the fact that God doesn't shame; He convicts. Who was that? Me. That was you, Greg. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so a nice note came in. Awesome program today. I'm a 75 year old woman, and somehow that really speaks to my heart. My father parented using shame, guilt, and telling us God didn't love us if mm-hmm. we were bad. Yeah. I'm hmm. still trying to figure out how a bad six or seven-year-old child could be to cause that kind of statement. It's incredible how long bad parenting stays with you. Just those words from uh, your guest today were so helpful. Wonderful. This, this whole idea of shaming is an actual proactive effort to diminish the person to cower them to to make them see themselves less than who they are that is not god's character it is not god's character now it doesn't mean that he doesn't convict us of sin it doesn't mean that we don't feel legitimate guilt for our sin but on the other side of that is his wonderful grace that he made a provision for that and so the idea is the conviction. It says the Holy Spirit, one of his main functions is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But I'm so glad that it was helpful to the listener because it's something we need to understand. God never shames anyone. He convicts us but doesn't shame us. I mentioned this before, but I think it's interesting. When I talk to millennials, they don't want to talk about sin. They don't believe in sin in that sense. And, you know, that kind of stifles a conversation if you're trying to talk about breaking the Lord's uh, will. But I have discovered that when I say to them, hey, I won't say anything about sin, but tell me how you're doing with your shame and guilt. It's a whole different ballgame because to one degree or another, everybody carries shame and guilt and the devil loves to put that on us. Because so long as we carry it, there's no remedy. We just hurt. Where when we come to Jesus, he takes that shame and guilt off of us and gives us his righteousness. This is one of the big lies of the world. There are there are actually many <laughs> lies of the world, and unfortunately, people believe many of them. But one of the great lies is God could never love you, mm-hmm. and God could never love me. The answer is, is that biblically, the Bible declares, God declares that God demonstrated his love for us, that while we were yet sinners— Christ died for us. He does love us even when we are sinners. Paul says that he was the worst of sinners, and yet Christ died for him and saved him when he believed in him. So, yes, God loves all. You can't sin your way out of God's love and the opportunity to, to be saved through his son. You know, even I hope the audience understands the significance of the enemy's effort to keep the Word of God out of your hands. Because it's the only plumb line we have, unalterable, axiomatic, which means that it's always true, the Word of God. And so if you don't have the Word of God, if you're not in the Word of God, you don't know where the plumb line is. In other words, you don't know where 
the balances. You don't know what's right or wrong. And so consequently, if he can keep the word away from you, like like Jeff was just talking to me, speaking the truth of God's word compared to what you've come to understand about shame versus actual conviction, well, where do you go to understand the difference between the two? The only place that's not going to lie to you is the word of God. And so that's why the enemy, folks, wants to keep the word away from you. Nicely done. All right. Uh, let's see here. Is heaven going to be on a new physical earth? Well, the scriptures, and Jeff, probably you can speak yeah. to this even in more detail, but I'll just say simply, it says he creates a new earth and a new heaven, not a refashioned one, not a regenerated one, not taking what we have here and making it better. He says a new earth and a new heavens. Jeff, you might want to respond to this as well. Yeah, he says in Revelation, and he makes all things new. And then Second yeah. Peter 3, I think, is key to understanding this new heaven and new earth, where he says the first earth was formed out of water. The next earth is going to be formed out of fire. So hot, <laughs> even the elements melt, he says. And so he's going to purify everything and make a new earth. I think the key, here's the big point with the new heaven and new earth for me, and that is today, right now, heaven and earth are not together. They're separated. Heaven is up here, earth is down here, and they're apart. For eternity, God is going to dwell with his people. So Revelation 21, 3 says, and now the dwelling of God is with men and Mm -hmm. he will dwell with them. So I think the key, whether it's this hunk of rock or not, is the fact that God will be with his people for all of eternity and heaven and earth come together. You're absolutely right. And there's one more element to that, because in the Lord's prayer, how do we pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, how is the Lord's kingdom going to come into this world in any form whatsoever, except through his people who believe his word and actually live it out and proclaim the name of Jesus? Apart from that, I know no other way to bring his kingdom except the final destruction and then the new heaven and new earth. All right, here's a comment from um, regarding the discussion we had on shame and guilt. And it says, I disagree. Shame comes from the Holy Spirit and having no shame comes from the devil. You guys have any response to that? I would love to see a scripture verse on that because I'm not familiar with that. If that's true, I certainly want to understand that and teach that. But I don't know of any particular verse that uses the terminology, the Holy Spirit brings shame upon us. Conviction, yes. Yes. that's. But not the word shame. Yep. And it's a completely different word in Greek than the word conviction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it might be a definitional thing yeah. here that the the question might be thinking about. Because, you know, if don't you have any shame is kind of what I hear in that question. And, and well, of course, we should have a, a self-awareness and, and understand that we are doing and not do things that, you know, like someone would say to us, don't you have any shame? They might referring to that. Definitionally, what we were talking about earlier was shame versus conviction, as the guys just said. Because mm-hmm. there are certainly things you would say, well, I'm ashamed of what I did. Yes. And that's mm-hmm. probably a God thing, right? When we in understand. The moment, in the moment. Yeah, when we, we, we say that and we confess that to the Lord, it's a very good thing. Yeah. When we take shame on and it's of the devil, it's to condemn us. It's not to build us up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now, shame is a natural function of a human being when they're um, exposed to the holiness of God or they're 
they see that they were wrong. There's this natural thing that comes on you, but it doesn't come from God. It comes from man. We feel shame, but it isn't God who shames us. There are just too many scriptures of how valuable we are to God. And the last thing he does is shame us. He'll convict us. But we'll feel shame. All right. Go ahead, Tom. I just think it's what we have to protect. We we just had Father's Day. The one thing I wanted to get across to fathers is be very careful how you talk to your children. It's one thing to shame your children when they do something wrong and call them stupid or you're just like your grandmother or you're never going to amount to anything. That's usually what shame does to us. Where doing the biblical thing is to say, what would you do different the next time? Or what would Jesus have you do? Or how can you be more like the Lord? Because one builds us up, the other one puts us down. Yeah. All right, do we know who baptized John? John the the baptizer. Do Do we have any record of him being baptized? I'm sure he was, right? We just don't I think know. he baptized himself. It was quite a feat. You should have seen it. It was amazing. It was... <laughs> I don't think we do have a record of who I don't baptized know of John. either. In yeah, scripture, yeah. talks about that. All right. We, we will take a break. When we come back, we still have time for your question. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. You're listening to Guide Talk. And we've got Tom, Greg, and Jeff all ready to take your questions and do their very best to answer them. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com I'm playing imaginary keyboards in the studio right now. I don't know why. I don't even know if I'm hitting the right notes. like you know what you're doing. Well, I'm not. I I don't, though. And I'm doing imaginary dancing. (laughs) (laughs) All right, it's Guy Talker, guys who talk, uh, Tom, Greg, Jeff. Great questions coming in. Gentlemen, can a believer in Jesus lose their salvation when they go back to a life of sin? When I was first saved and I started really delving into Scripture uh, 30 plus years ago now, this was one of the big questions that I had. Uh, can I lose my salvation? I thought it was a very important question because it's like, okay, at what point could I lose my salvation? How many sins? You know, five sins a day, one sin repeated, 40 days. How? And if I, if we could lose our salvation, shouldn't we be just as busy keeping people saved as we are trying to save people in the church, right? And I searched and searched, and I would read one article or another, and I'd be swayed one way or another by the arguments that I read. And you know what I did? I finally kind of set this issue up in my mind. I don't know if you guys have shelves in your mind. I have a shelf right about here, and I put it there. And it's like, Lord, this seems to be really important. I need to know the answer to this. And it was probably two weeks later. I was reading in Ephesians chapter 1, and it says, Having believed, you are marked in him with a deposit. The Holy Spirit, I'm sorry, the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance until the day of Christ Jesus. 
And I thought to myself, of course we're securing our salvation. It couldn't be any other way. And over the next months and years, I have found dozens of passages that declare that having begun a good work in you, he will carry it on to completion. Your faith is kept in heaven for you. Your salvation is kept in heaven, shielded by God's power until that day that he holds us in his hands. Uh, He guarantees our inheritance. We will be glorified and that God declares over and over that once you're born again and receive eternal life, you have eternal life for all of eternity. I'm not going to argue with that. All right. Greg, do you want to argue with that? No, no. I mean, I'm I'm looking at a a statement right here. It says, A Christian is redeemed, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of this uh, handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish. The word redeem refers to a purchase being made, a price being paid. We were purchased at the cost of Christ's death. For the Christian to Mm -hmm. lose salvation... God himself would have to revoke his purchase of the individual for whom he paid with the precious blood of Christ. Hmm. Very good. Yeah, he says he gives up. You know, this is one of the most common questions that I've, I get. I don't know about you guys, but in my class, over and over again, class after class, this is one of the most common questions. And I think it's such a critical understanding for the believer to understand that God gave you his Holy Spirit. And he said, the Spirit will be with you for how long? Forever. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, we've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our salvation. Mm-hmm. And the only one who can break that seal is God, and he's not going to go against his word, just as this passage was talking about. So you are sealed. I like the concept of sealed, and this is my heart, exactly what you're saying. The problem is we don't have a good discussion in Christianity on this, because you all know there are passages that Jesus says, he who endures to the end will be saved. He doesn't give the impression that it's going to happen no matter what. And then Hebrews does that a couple of times, talking about blaspheming the name of the Son of God. I think it would be good, and I'm not saying we can do it on this show, but I wish we could sit down with a forum of Christians and really look at these passages together because they haven't been well explained in light of what we're talking about. And I want people to have that assurance. I don't want anybody to drift from that. Keep your focus on Jesus, and it could be just fine. Mm-hmm. Can I read a passage from Hebrews 7 when you bring it up? It's sure. uh, starting in about 23. It says, Now there have been many of those priests, since death prevented them from continuing in office. The old priests, they died, obviously. But because Jesus lives forever, he's now our priest, right? He's yeah. our high priest in heaven. And because he lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. In other words, your salvation is conditional on the fact that you continue to have a high priest who will intercede for you. Well, Jesus lives forever. He will always intercede for you and be your high priest. Therefore, he can say that he saves us completely and forever. Cool. Yeah, I like that, and I want that to be the reality. I don't want it any other way. Mm-hmm. All right, so many great questions and so many smart uh, people that send questions in. This one, I recently had a discussion with someone who claims to be a Christian but doesn't hold to the Bible as inerrant, authoritative, and inspired word of God. I don't understand how one can claim to be a follower of Christ but refute our primary source of knowledge regarding who Christ is. Do you think there is an objective view of what a Christian is 
And must a Christian hold a certain orthodoxy of beliefs about what Christianity is to be a Christian? It's a very good question, and I think a legitimate question, um, because that's the struggle I think a lot of people have trying to understand this. Here's what I think about this whole thing. Yes, there are some orthodox things that we need to believe. We need to believe that Jesus, you know, is the Son of God who died for our sins and rose from the dead. Now, do I believe in the inerrancy and fallibility of Scripture? I sure do, and I will teach it that way. But I'm not sure where the Word of God says that if I don't believe in that, I'm lost. It says I need to believe in Jesus. So can there be Christians who miss the mark of the Word of God? Yeah, I think there can be because they've legitimately thrown themselves to the feet of Jesus. But I would sure like to sit down and work with them and help them look at the Word of God because most often people who say that have had a cursory look at the Word. They haven't looked in depth. Yeah, it's a matter of who are you trusting in. If you're trusting in, as you talked about, Tom, Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. If you repent and you receive him as your Lord and Savior, you're saved. But if you believe that the Word of God is not inerrant and and it isn't true, then you're going to be a Christian infant for the rest of your natural existence. You're not going to grow because the Word of God is all about growing, all about learning, all about maturing in faith. And how can you do that without spending time in the Word of God to get to know the heart of God. So if you don't believe in the inspired Word of God, then I'm afraid you're going to be a baby Christian until God calls you home. Yeah. Yeah, salvation is by faith alone. I mean, I, we all this yeah. all of us agree upon that. The yeah. Bible declares it very clearly that it's by faith alone. If you have faith, you can so you can have faith in Christ, right? But how do you know about Christ? How do you know about his death and his burial and resurrection other than the fact that it's been recorded in the scriptures? So if you're going to question the reliability, the authority, or the inspiration of these scriptures that declare the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, who he is, his nature, his character, what he taught, everything about him, it's like, well, how did you get to the point of faith if you don't believe our our source for, for declaring that he is Lord? Um, and, and yet it is by faith, by faith alone. The man on the cross next to Jesus did not have a doctrinal understanding of much of anything. <laughs> That's right. But he entrusted in the person of Jesus Christ for his eternal salvation, and Jesus said he was saved. So I think it's that simple. Mm-hmm. Well, we were talking about children dying and what would be happening to them. I think a follow-up question came in, so I'll deal with this quickly. Uh, the first part I feel like we've covered, but the second part was interesting. Uh, what is God's judgment on or what happens to infants and very young children who die? We did talk about that earlier. I th- mm-hmm. I think the, the comment uh, continues to say, I think it's 2 Corinthians, where the Bible says if one parent is a follower of Christ, the children, the children will be saved. But what if neither parent is a Christian? Uh, I'm not familiar with that scripture. Oh, I'm not I, either. I'm not either. Uh, it doesn't ring a bell whatsoever if, if the person can... Let us know what passage he's yeah. specifically or she is specifically yeah, talking I'll about. I'll find it. Um, there, there is theologically, look, this is about what happens to children is one of these things that Scripture does not clearly speak to. Uh, Greg, your your example of David and, and his infant child who dies and being with him together is about the most compelling 
uh, story or, or piece in the scripture that that gives us a hint of what's going to happen to these children. So I also believe that they will be saved. But theologically, you could make a case, uh, biblically, that only children of the righteous go to heaven. Um, and, and there are some teachers who teach that. So some teach that all children go to heaven if they die before this age of accountability, whatever that is. Others teach that no, only the children of the righteous would go to heaven if they die before that age. Um, do I wish scripture spoke more on this? Yes, I actually do. But I think the power of the story of David and that he will see his child again convinces me that every single child when they die will actually go to heaven. But as Tom said, I think it was Tom said earlier, God's judgments are perfect, and we won't be surprised at his judgments when we finally see and what he's done in, in these situations. Nicely done. All right, gentlemen, I think that is about all the time we have. <laughs> Two hours have gone by? Yeah, it went really fast. Wow. Did it not go fast? Wow. <laughs> sure hey, did. I got an idea. Let's do this next week. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't go... Jumping ahead. <laughs> Come on, I'd take one day at a time, so we'll figure well, out. I, if we'll I do think this it's next great week. the questions we're getting from you folks. Um, it, it's wonderful. No, they're great. Mm-hmm. And we didn't get to all of them, just so you know. I did not ignore your question. If Rosie does a really good job of gathering them, and then we'll try to get to them next week. You, so. you know, quickly, that one person who raised a question of, of shame in Romans 10 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There you go. I like that. Mm. All right, gentlemen, uh, job well done. Have a wonderful evening and uh, enjoy the rest of your week. And I will you, uh, look is forward to it. Is the pizza here? Pizza, is, <laughs> once again, is not here. Um, <laughs> so maybe next time. All right. That's all our show. Thank you so much to Jeff <laughs> and Tom and Greg for being here for Guide Talk. I've had a wonderful time. I hope you have as well. I hope you have a great night. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.